Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 45. see from the introduction to the psalm there, the last portion, if you're in a pew Bible or, or your own Bible, it, it says a song of love, a song of love. So if you're able, would you stand with me and I'll read this song. Heavenly Father, come upon us today with your Holy Spirit, we ask. Give us clarity and insight. Help us understand the depth of the love that you have for us, the steps that you're willing to take to go to secure our salvation and to fulfill your promises that are made to those who are in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So, 40, Psalm 45, it's for the choir director according to Shoshanim, the mascal of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon thy lips. Therefore God has blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword on thy thigh, O mighty one, in thy splendor and in thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let thy right hand teach thee awesome things. Thine arrows are sharp and the peoples fall under thee. Thine arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of joy above thy fellows. All thy garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made thee glad. King's daughters are among thy noble ladies. At the right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophrah. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will entreat with favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to thee. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause thy name to be remembered in all the generations. Therefore, the peoples will give thanks to thee forever and ever. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. This psalm is unique of all the psalms. It is written on the occasion of a royal wedding. A royal wedding. As you see from the title, it's a song of love. And it's also a messianic song. 
So when we talk about a royal wedding, obviously we've got two things going on here at the same time. We've got the context of the psalm, and it's probably written for one of the Davidic kings, and I'm going to guess from study that it is Solomon and Solomon's wedding to a princess of Egypt. And now, he did have a few wives, so I'm not sure which wife this would have been, uh, but pretty sure the, uh, one of the princesses of Egypt that he was wed to. And, and so you've got that context of it. But we'll also see that there is the context of the things pointing to the royal wedding, the messianic wedding of Christ and his bride, which would be the church. Because some of the language here is just too spectacular to apply to any human. And we'll see that in, in just a moment. Um, it, it's, uh, the Scottish pastor Alexander McLaren said, Either we have here a piece of poetical exaggeration far beyond the limits of poetic license, or someone greater than Solomon is referred to here. I'm pretty sure it's referring to Christ here. Here at the very outset, he continues, we have the keynote struck of superhuman excellence. And though the reference is on the surface only to physical perfection, yet beneath that there lies the deeper reference to a character which spoke through the eloquent frame and in all possible beauties and sovereign graces were united in fullest development, in most harmonious cooperation and unsustained purity. You only get things like that from Christ. You don't get that from Solomon. Solomon was a good guy most of the time. Uh, Solomon was, uh, uh, you know, he had his chance, and it was a question of, well, the Lord said, what do you want? He said, I want to be wise. I want to be wise. So the Lord blessed him in an incredible fashion. He said, the psalmist says, thou art fairer than the children of men. Now, let's turn over briefly to Isaiah 53. Now, if, if this is, is, is referring to the Messiah in a, in a sense, in a prophetic fashion, as it's pointing to the one that the Lord will send, uh, the groom, and we see plenty of places, as, as we read in John chapter 14, that he comes back for his bride, uh, and there's plenty of wedding imagery throughout the New Testament. If this is referring to Christ, we're going to put this alongside what the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 says. Okay, Thou art fairer than the children of men. What does Isaiah say? Chapter Verse 1, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. This is the same Christ that they are referring to. One in his beauty and holiness, and the other in his beauty of sacrifice. His beauty of giving all that he was for us. And, and we had no real interest in him. It's not as if that beauty uh, attracted, to, uh, attracted us to him physically. It was the beauty of his sacrifice, the beauty of giving up all that he was for us. That's what Isaiah is referencing here. McLaren goes on to say, and, and Alexander's writing back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he says, We have to think not of the outward form, however lovely, with the loveliness of meekness and transfigured with the refining patience of suffering it may have been, 
but of the beauty of the soul that was all radiant with a luster of loveliness that shames the fragmentary and marred virtues of the best of us and stands before the world forever as the supreme type, the high watermark of the grace that is given to us. So McLaren is, is looking at both of these things, at the beauty that is listed in forty five Psalm 45 and of the beauty of holiness and sacrifice listed for us in Isaiah. So back to Psalm 45. He's looking forward to this future king whose perfect, the eternal reign is being foreshadowed in what the Davidic kings were. Uh, you know, David was a man after God's own heart. He was not chosen like the rest of the kings were of that time. But he was chosen because of his desire and, and love and, and righteousness, his love for the Lord. Um, and Solomon came along. He was not the firstborn of David's children. Uh, in fact, we know the, the whole story of Bathsheba and how it all came about. Uh, but he was from the line that would eventually come the king that would sit for all eternity on the throne Jesus the Christ. So this is kind of a love song with lots of wedding imagery tied in here um, through, throughout this psalm. Now there's a short introduction, verse 1 of Psalm 45, it's just a, an introduction, and then verses 2 through 9 talk about the groom. Uh, 2 through 9 talk about the groom, and then 10 through 15 talk about the bride, and then 16 and 17 kind of give us a wrap up of, of what's going on here. Uh, but it's interesting that the groom is described for us, and he's also praised for us uh, as he is described. So it gives us this great image of who this groom is and all the things that are going to go on here as he goes through with this wedding. Now let me give you some, uh, some background into Old Testament uh, covenant weddings and marriages. Okay? Now you'll see if, if uh, this is... It, John 14 is a great passage to use at the graveside. So if you've been to a graveside service, you've probably heard me use this because the imagery is so clear there. Uh, but it starts back in the Old Testament. Um, now in ancient times, the first step leading up to uh, a wedding was betrothal. And this was a very formal act. It wasn't just a, uh, a get-together and, and agree to things. Uh, this was a very formal and it was binding legally at this point. Usually the fathers would get together and they would talk and they would make all the arrangements uh, and, and settle on a date and settle on the gift that the groom's family would give to the bride's family. Okay, And often this was done very, uh, I want to, not very early, before an age when they would marry. And then the, the groom's dad and the groom would begin to work and stash away money over a course of uh, five or so years and then when enough was was accumulated they would then go ahead with the wedding uh, because they had enough accumulated but for those five years this betrothal was binding it was a legally binding contract at those days much like we see with joseph and mary they had not come together as man and wife, but they were betrothed. And Joseph talks about putting her away quietly because he didn't want to bring shame upon her. Well, he would have had to divorce her, basically, and that would have brought a lot of shame. But, of course, we know the angel comes and, and makes things clear. So the husband's family would provide this, and then once these things were agreed to, the, the father and the son 
would go back to the father's house and begin to build onto the father's house an apartment or another home. Uh, so that you would have a wing for this son, and depending upon how many sons he had, he would have other wings coming off the house. You remember from John, it says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many rooms, many mansions. He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to build these places for you, and then I'm going to do what? I'm going to come back and get you. So once this was all done, the, the, the groom and his wedding party would process across town, collect the bride and her wedding party, and go back to the father's house. They'd have this big blowout. And it might, depending upon the status of the father, it might go for uh, three or four days. It might go for two weeks. Can you imagine uh, a two-week wedding party? Okay, now, I've been to my share of weddings, and um, I know what, you know, what it costs the head uh, to go to some of these weddings. And... You know, I got three daughters, and I'm, I just, I want them to call me and say, yeah, we got married last week. I'm great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, they show up in my office one day with, with a guy, hopefully that I have known and vetted, and say, hey, Dad, we want to be married. Did you bring the license? Great, because all it takes is me. I'm the one that signs it, so we can do it, just three of us. We might call Judy and have her come, too, maybe. <laughs> So, so that's what it would be. And then, they, and then they would move into the house that the father and the son had built for them. Now let's take a little trip to heaven for just a second. Just a second. Why are there so many rooms in heaven? Well, when we look at the physical description of heaven, and, and remember, John, this is out of Revelation, John is seeing things through human eyes that are heavenly, and he's trying to describe them in human terms. Now, we know that Revelation 21 says that heaven is, it gives us a distance, and it works out about 1,500 cubic miles, okay? So it's a cube uh, in, his, in his description of about 1,500 miles this way, and 1,500 miles uh, this way, and 1,500 miles this way. You know, who lives at the penthouse? You think 1,500 miles up, that's pretty high. Well, if you do a little math, and, and frankly, I didn't do the math, somebody else did for me, that's about two and a quarter million square miles. So that's a lot of square miles. Uh, London is 140 square miles. Now, a, uh, an engineer, as you can imagine, uh, came up with this, and he figured that a billion people could actually live in London. A billion, think of that, a billion people. And it's not as if, if you look at the studies, if you, if you have everybody in the world stand, just stand like this, and, and not touch each other. You could get, I, I think, if, if my memory serves, you could get the population of the world in Madison County. Okay? Now, that's not moving around. That's just standing. Okay? Well, this image of a billion people in 140 square miles, that's living. And, and, and actually, I mean, you're living close, but you're living. So think of two and a quarter million square miles. That's a pretty large place. That's a... That, fits a lot of people. Now, we understand from Scripture that the road to heaven is narrow, and the road to hell is wide. So, hmm, does that mean that only a few people are going to heaven? Well, not everybody's going. We know that because of what John says. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. So it makes it clear that only those who are in Christ are going there. Um, 
So, but there are many other ways that people think they're going, but they're not going. And also, when, when we look at, at this picture of heaven for us, we have to remember that our Heavenly Father and His attributes and His character, these things are infinite. There are not limits, and he's not bound by space and time. So when we look at a definitive space, is it definitive? Well, the Lord is infinite, and he's not bound by these things. These things might be a good picture for us, and we, can, we, we know we're going to heaven, and it's going to be there, and it's going to have some structure to it. But frankly, we won't be up there measuring. You know, the Lord, really? I paced it off, Lord, and, and it didn't work out to 1,500, okay? Uh, no. We will be so enamored with our Heavenly Father, so enamored that we're no longer touched and bound by sin. We won't care about those things, okay? But that's just for our conjecture here on, on earth. And to get an idea of the promises our Heavenly Father makes to us, and he will fulfill those promises. So we, we go back to the wedding that's, that's listed for us here, this type of ancient thing. So the, the bride prepares herself. She gets on her best clothes. We can see that it's interwoven with gold and, and, and fine things. All the jewels that the family has you know, are bestowed upon the bride for this day. And the, the groom comes across, collects her, goes back, takes her to the place that he has prepared for her. Um, so this is the great wedding event. Okay, and we see this in so many instances in Scripture. We got we have the parable of the ten virgins. We have the John passage. We have um, you know in the Old Testament it talks much more about husband and wife, God as the husband, and Israel the covenant people as the wife. Uh, no better place is this laid out for us than the book of Hosea, and and the struggles that Hosea goes through, and how they are uh, images of God's faithfulness and the covenant people's unfaithfulness. So let's look at a little bit of, of this song here uh, so that we can get a description of the king's character. Uh, look at verse 2. Thou art fairer than the sons of men. Um, so he's describing the king in these words here. Grace pours from your lips. The, the king's might is described in verse 3. Gird thy sword on thy thigh, O mighty one. He describes the king's victories in, in four. Thy majesty, ride on victoriously uh, for the cause of truth. Uh, let your right hand teach these awesome things here. Um, he describes the crushing defeat of his enemies in five. Your arrows are sharp. The people fall under them. Okay. Uh, he describes the splendor of the king's garments. Look down in verse 8. Thy garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloe and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made thee glad. The king's daughters and the noble ladies are described in ten. So it gives us, and that's just, just breezing through there, but it gives us a, a description of who this individual is. So this is, this is a pretty splendid king, but this is something spectacular as well. Now remember Solomon's day. Solomon ruled uh, 970 to 930 B.C., about those 40 years, 39 or 40 years. And that was called the Golden Age of Israel. Um, so again, studies and, and, and comparisons have been done. Um, Solomon's personal wealth was calculated at, at several hundred billion dollars in today's, if, if he was going to be today. And that's just his personal wealth. That doesn't deal with all the wealth that poured into Israel at that time. Uh, 
Um, there have been studies about the amount of gold and silver and precious gems and, and special woods and everything that came into the nation as a whole. I mean, it was the richest place in the world during Solomon's reign. And that was because of the blessings of the Lord. But here the king is described far greater than David, far greater than Solomon, far greater than any human king possible. Um, it says, your throne, O God, is forever. A scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, your God has anointed you. He's, gone, he's not talking about Solomon anymore. He's gone on to the things to come the things of Christ, the things that will manifest themselves in the coming of our Lord and Savior. Now, we're going to look at, at how this is kind of played out. I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. This is one of the places in particular where, where this psalm is quoted and where this psalm has its application for the church. Now, remember the Hebrews, or the audience of this book, the Hebrews, were believers who had come out of Judaism, believed in Christ, and there were some, some persecution going. There was some persecution going on, so they're kind of debating what they want to do. Maybe we should go back to Judaism because the Jews aren't being persecuted right now, and and maybe you know we made a mistake. Maybe we we're following somebody who was not as good as we thought. And the author of Hebrews goes through and he lists angels and Moses and every other thing and Jesus is superior to all of this he's saying don't go back to that you this is the fulfillment all the things that you were raised with all the things that you saw in the old testament they are fulfilled in Christ fulfilled in Christ let's look um, I'm going to read from verse one that we're in particular we're verses eight and nine we'll get there but this kind of, is kind of the build-up Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also he made the world. So in case there's any doubt about the validity and the authority and the position of Christ, the first two verses he just lays it out there. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. That's a phrase we just don't use. But so often is we see the word of God is the work of God. He speaks and it is created. So Christ upholds the world through his word. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which the angels did he ever say, and then he begins to quote a list of the Old Testament scriptures that apply here, and they're finding its fulfillment in Christ. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when again... Uh, when he, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? And in 8 and 9 in particular. But the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, 
Therefore, God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. So he's quoting from Psalm 45 there, and he says this is finding its fulfillment. So if we want to know, is the Psalm 45 messianic? Yes, it is. Why? Because it's applied here in, through the author of Hebrews. Um, it's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So it, it's the fulfillment of all these things that pointed to something special from the Old Testament to Christ. So how else do we find this? Let me just give you a couple of scriptures. John 5 says, You search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, and it is that they bear witness about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So he's saying Moses wrote of me. That's Christ who's saying that. Luke 24, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That was on the on the road where he met the two disciples after his death and after his resurrection. Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So therefore you have the coming of Christ and virtually everything has changed. But better yet, it's not just change, it's been fulfilled. They're waiting and they're waiting and they're looking and we, we hear these things and all of a sudden along comes Christ and he fulfills these things. Now, what are the things that he fulfills? I just have a list of six that's probably not exhaustive, but it's a good list. What has changed? From the old into the new. No more sacrifices. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the bloods, blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, giving us eternal redemption. We never have to go out in the backyard, build an altar, and sacrifice a goat to the Lord for the atonement of our sins. Christ has done that. He has done that. Secondly, the priesthood that stood between the worshiper and God has ceased. You can go right to the Lord. You don't have to come into my office and say, Randy, can you pray for me? Well, I'd be glad to pray for you. But my question will be, are, are you praying too? Okay, Because you can go right to the throne. Christ has done that. Christ has done that. The former priest, Hebrews chapter 7, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. The priest would grow old, he would die. Christ never dies. Well, yes, he, he died and was raised, but he is for all eternity now, the one who intervenes for us before the Father. Number three, the physical temple is no longer the geographic center of worship. Christ dwells within us. We worship the Lord wherever we are, wherever we are. There's no Mecca that we have to go to. That Mecca is Christ dwelling within us. Remember John chapter 4, Jesus says to the woman at the well, he says, Believe the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then he says to the Pharisees, Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it again. The temple he was talking about was his body. The fourth thing, the food laws that set Israel apart as a nation, 
are no longer a political they have been fulfilled now for those of us who love barbecue that's a great thing ok or shrimp or lobster you know those bottom dwellers it because it's don't you see that whatever goes into a person doesn't defile him it's what comes out of a person that defiles him ok so those food laws are set aside number five it's no longer a theocracy we're no longer governed by direct insight from the Lord all we have to do is read Romans 13 we are to be in accord with civil governments and follow them the Lord puts those people in positions of power and we are to follow them as long as or up until they deviate from what the word says when they deviate from what the word says we are not obligated we will still pay the civil consequences but we're not obligated to follow them if they go against what the word says Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by him. One other one that I thought, and as I said, there's probably more, and I just just picked these six, is that, uh, what day is it? Sunday. And we're here in worship on Sunday. We we worship on Sunday now because Christ was raised from the dead on Sunday. Uh, The Holy Spirit came Sunday. Okay? Uh, the practice of the first century church was to worship on the first day of the week. Not the last day, but the first. And that is the fulfillment of those things from the old, pointing to the ultimate things in Christ. The ultimate things in Christ. The psalm says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The image is played out for us in the image of a groom and a bride. And this groom is so special. And so perfect. And he comes and he makes his bride that way as well. And his bride is everyone who has received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Everyone whose life has been changed by his grace and his mercy. And we see very clearly that in his splendid and in his splendor, his splendid clothing, his his robed in righteousness and grace and mercy, he does all these things for us. Because of his love for us. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and these these promises that we see from your word. That you have loved us to such an extent that you would send your son into this world as our groom. As the one who comes for his bride. Not only does he come for us, but first he prepares us. He makes a way that we might be ready for his return. Ready for all that he calls us to do as we wait for his return. And as a husband, as a groom who loves his bride, he will come and collect us. And take us to the place that he has prepared for us. Heavenly Father, remind us of this great love. Remind us of how it's it's just foreshadowed in the old and fulfilled in the new and we wait the return of Christ to collect all of those who belong to him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Please stand as you're able and join together in singing hymn number 450.